I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Oil fueled the 20th century. It's cars, it's wars, it's economy and it's geopolitics. Now a huge energy shock is accelerating a shift to a new order. I'm Rachna Shanbog, The Economist Finance Editor, and you're listening to Money Talks, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. This week, 21st century power. Demand for fossil fuels has collapsed. Could the world have passed peak oil? Renewables are penetrating the energy system more quickly than any fuel ever seen in history. How will this transition redraw the geopolitical map? And it changes the whole way the world economy has operated since the beginning of this century. And could the next chapter in energy history be written by China? On the one hand, it's the largest carbon emitter. On the other hand, it's the largest clean energy market. Charlotte Howard is our energy and commodities editor, and she wrote this week's cover story. Economist radio fans will know her from our sister podcast, Checks and Balance, on American politics in the run-up to the presidential election. And if you haven't heard it yet, I highly recommend it. Charlotte, thanks so much for joining Money Talks. Thanks for having me. And don't worry, there's no quiz here. <laughs> Fantastic. That's my, for people who don't listen to Checks and Balance, there's a quiz at the end, which I always um, have the wrong answer for. So I'm very relieved that there's no quiz involved in this conversation. <laughs> So, Charlotte, I understand this reporting project was in the works for a while. And to say a lot has changed in energy markets in 2020 is an understatement. Tell us a bit about the backstory. I had been planning to write about the clean energy supply chain. So looking at the manufacturers of um, solar panels and batteries and wind turbines, etc., stretching all the way back to the companies that are mining for the minerals you need, cobalt, lithium, copper, and so on. I had plans in the works to visit China and then a plan scheduled to visit the Democratic Republic of Congo this spring. And of course, the spring brought not just COVID, but an historic shock to the global energy system with a very sudden and and huge collapse in demand for oil. And I had been covering the long-term shift away from oil and gas in a somewhat hypothetical way. And all of a sudden, it became very real with COVID. Now, the price of oil has seesawed before, though. Uh, One fact from your piece that stopped me in my tracks was that since 1970, the oil prices swung by over 30% inside a six-month period, 62 times. Why is this slump different? Yeah, that was an interesting statistic. And oil traders and people in the oil market have steely stomachs. You have to be used to this roller coaster. But what's happening now is different. So even before this big shock, The world's biggest oil companies were very much under strain. Investors were becoming less and less interested in oil companies' model, which is to invest over very long term in bringing oil and gas fields into production. And governments were also thinking about how to accelerate the shift away from fossil fuels because of concern about climate change. 
And both of those trends became even more exaggerated this year. The value of America's shale sector has fallen by more than 50% since January. And ExxonMobil, which until just a few years ago was the world's biggest, most valuable company, has been kicked off the Dow Jones Industrial Average. It had served on that index since 1928. So you see the oil sector really suffering. And then the clean energy industry, in contrast, is gaining momentum. Not fast enough, um, it's worth noting, to deal with the risk of climate change. But you do see shifts in capital markets. So clean power stocks have risen by about 45% this year. In Europe, the EU has become much more serious, not just talking about a European Green Deal, but really becoming more firm in its targets for decarbonization. The European Commission is proposing to increase the 2030 targets for emission reduction to at least 55%. And in the U.S., Donald Trump is not interested in thinking about decarbonization in particular, but Joe Biden is. We're going to invest $1.7 trillion in securing our future so that by 2050, the United States will be 100% clean energy economy with net zero emissions. So you see some of these different forces that have been underway for a while becoming more amplified this year. Do all of these trends mean that the world might have reached peak oil demand? It's very possible that that's true. I spoke with Spencer Dale, who's the chief economist for BP, one of the world's biggest oil and gas companies. And it's worth noting that BP, which has had oil and gas at the heart of its business, is trying to pursue a very different strategy going forward. It's trying to slowly phase down oil and gas production and increase its investment in renewables and in clean energy quite quickly. And when you talk to Spencer, you get a sense for why. We look at three different scenarios. A business as usual scenario, a scenario in which carbon emissions fall by around 70%, which is broadly consistent with what is needed to maintain temperature rises to well below two degrees, and a scenario where you get to net zero by 2050. In two of the scenarios, although oil demand recovers, it never recovers back to its 2019 levels. And so the impact of COVID-19 has had the impact of bringing forward the peak in oil demand in two of those scenarios. But in a business as usual scenario, oil demand does recover back to its pre-crisis level. One of the interesting things you raise in the report is the attention to energy security after COVID. And I'm curious if you could talk a bit more about whether you think rising attention to energy security will accelerate or slow down the transition to clean energy. If, as a response to COVID, we see governments trying to become more resilient in terms of some aspects of their economy, and so there's a general shift to deglobalization, the impact of that for relatively small assumptions is quite profound. So you see less strong growth overall, but also this sort of concerns about energy security sees a shift away from traded energy towards domestically produced energy. And so what particularly happens there is we see exports of oil and gas decline and a combination of countries like China and India increasingly use domestically produced energy. So some of that is they produce their own oil and gas, but the sort of stronger growth in renewables, which is obviously good for the energy transition, but also they make increasing use of coal as well, which they have in abundance. The net of that in terms of as the energy mix gets cleaner or dirtier, there's a slight improvement. So the increasing growth of renewables means you see a slight improvement in the energy mix. But the key feature here is that it really dampens the growth 
of oil and gas imports and exports. You do see a rising role for the growth of renewables in all three scenarios. Yeah, so when we're talking about renewables, we're talking about wind and solar power, bioenergy and geothermal power. 2018, that accounted for about 5% of primary energy. In all three of the scenarios we look at, that share rises to somewhere between 20% and 60% by 2050, depending on which scenario you're looking at. The key point here, in all three of those scenarios, renewables are penetrating the energy system more quickly than any fuel ever seen in history. It's really striking to hear that from BP, big oil itself. But Charlotte, what does this transition really mean for the global energy system? Well, it's worth highlighting a few things. One is that the pace of the transition is quite uncertain. So much depends on the activities of investors, on the decisions of governments, and those decisions are being made right now in real time. But there are certain long-running trends. One is that the old energy system was basically premised on the idea that uh, oil was scarce, that there was steadily rising demand for oil, and that there was finite supply. And both of those assumptions are now in question um, because of America's shale boom, but also because of big discoveries offshore elsewhere and advances in technology, which means you can extract more oil more cheaply. And so at the same time that the estimates of supply have increased, the estimates of demand have faltered, largely because of this concern about climate change and the rapid electrification, in particular of transportation. As you start to move away from what has historically been a seller's market to one that increasingly becomes a buyer's market, the balance of power shifts and what it means to be an energy superpower changes. You see power shifting to the countries and companies that have a real edge in generating clean electricity, that have the technologies and the supply chains to do so. Anxiety over energy supplies has shaped American policy and politics for a century. It took a long time to be independent, and as long as I'm your president, we will never let anyone put American energy out of business, which is this summer, like Mr. Trump addressed an audience of Texas oilmen from a stage decorated with gleaming black barrels. We will never again be reliant on hostile foreign suppliers. We it's a claim former presidents from Franklin D. Roosevelt onwards would have envied. In the 20th century, it was simple. Oil bestowed wealth and power. Conclusion to the historic Yalta Conference as a plane carries President Roosevelt to Egypt to solidify ties in the Middle East. But after the Second World War, America's unmatched ability to consume oil outstripped its ability to produce it. This conference was no doubt among the most important of these meetings and presumably centered on the vastly important question of oil, the potential American development of the oil concession granted by the king. Oil imports rose steadily to the 1970s, up to a third of all consumption. In 1973, OPEC, a cartel of oil-producing nations, imposed an embargo on America in retaliation for its support for Israel during the Yom Kippur War. The impact was traumatic. America faced an energy crisis, and President Nixon was forced to urge the public to cut back. To be sure that there is enough oil to go around for the entire winter all over the country, it will be essential for all of us to live and work in lower temperatures. 
We must ask everyone to lower the thermostat. Nixon's successor, Jimmy Carter, was determined to end the crisis. He called for huge investment in renewable energy and even installed solar panels on the roof of the White House. But his efforts were in vain. The Iranian Revolution of 1979 hit oil supplies and prices went up still further. By 1980, the price of a barrel of oil was 10 times what it had been a decade before. Ronald Reagan, elected that year, had a very different vision. That we have only leased out and begun to explore 2% of our outer continental shelf for oil, there are vast supplies yet to be found. He scrapped Carter's regulation and those solar panels from the White House roof. But the oil shocks of the 1970s had a profound effect on the economy and on America's foreign policy. Immediately after the Iraqi invasion, I ordered an embargo of all trade with Iraq. Take, for example, George H.W. Bush's intervention following Iraq's invasion of Kuwait in 1990. The stakes are high. Iraq is already a rich and powerful country that possesses the world's second largest reserves of oil. America's recent shale oil boom has changed all that. Over the past decade, America's oil output has more than doubled and its gas production increased by over 50%, making it the top producer of both fuels. I see a lot of big, beautiful rigs behind me. Thanks to the hardworking citizens like you, the United States of America is now the number one energy superpower anywhere in the world. But despite what Mr. Trump says, being a mighty pumper of oil may no longer be enough. And China, a huge buyer of oil and gas and the world's leading exponent of renewable energy at scale, is poised to become a new kind of energy power. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So Charlotte, the pandemic seems to be catalyzing a fundamental transformation in energy markets away from oil and towards cleaner technologies. Does a new energy order also mean a new geopolitical order? That's the vital question that will end up determining how this transition takes place. I spoke to Daniel Jurgen, who is considered the preeminent historian and energy expert uh, really in the world. He's written several books on how energy and geopolitics collide. His first one was The Prize, which won a Pulitzer, and he has a new one, which is called The New Map. You know, even a decade ago, people were talking about peak oil running out of oil. Now the question is, when does demand flatten out and begin to decline? The other thing that really struck me is just, you know, China hardly figured in the prize, and yet it's central in the new map because China imports 75% of its oil. And of course, uh, it was that era of scarcity, 
and the thought that the U.S. would end up being the world's largest oil producer just couldn't have been imagined because of this disruptive technology. So as you say, Dr. Jurgen, America has become such a big oil and gas producer over the past decade. Can you paint us a picture of what you expect would happen to America's oil and gas industry under a Biden presidency compared with a second term for President Trump? It would be different. Biden has a $2 trillion climate plan, really to try and move towards a net zero carbon by 2050, if not before then. On the other hand, he said, I'm not going to ban fracking, he said, in western Pennsylvania, where there are a lot of jobs that depend upon it. He said, let me repeat, I'm not going to ban fracking. I think the recognition is that this is a really important industry. It's important to the overall economy. It's before COVID, over 12 million jobs. And I think there, you know, there are advantages to come from the U.S. energy position, including you know, dealing with Iran from a position of strength rather than a position of dependence. And if you really restricted oil and gas production, then that means that imports would go up. And I, I don't think uh, Joe Biden would want to be the president who presides over a really rapid increase in U.S. oil imports. So I think it's going to be a balancing of putting these elements together, but a, a very different weight from the Trump administration with its uh, talk of energy dominance. I'd say one thing, though, to keep in mind, there's all the rhetoric out there, but the Department of Energy spends $6.5 billion on basic science research tied into energy, and that's under the Trump administration. That would continue under Biden. Technology is really the most important thing here to address climate issues. We've seen in the past month huge cuts in capital spending from some of the largest uh, publicly traded oil companies. People are no longer battling over the right to, to find new oil fields in the way that they once were. So what does that mean for some countries that have high cost reserves but are dependent on oil revenue? These cuts are really large. 30% cuts in budget from the beginning of the year for majors, 50% or more for the large independents, the national oil companies cutting back. You know, on the one hand, you do have this kind of short cycle oil, the Permian, the shale that you can ramp up more quickly. But so much depends really on what kind of economic growth we have after COVID. You're really predicting GDP in a way, but these cuts of this magnitude certainly mean that a lot of development that was on the boards isn't going to happen and the, the supply side is going to look different. We had this year the 60th anniversary of OPEC, and it's certainly been an interesting anniversary year for the cartel because there was not just COVID, but also this dramatically ill-timed price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia that took off at the beginning of March. So they've since pulled it together and they're restraining production. What do you expect for OPEC over the next decade? Are they going to be disciplined in getting all the members on board and restraining production? Or do you think that they could become more aggressive in battling for market share, that the old principles that held OPEC together may not work as well going forward? I think the paradigm of OPEC versus everyone else has kind of been overtaken by events. This is an organization that has members, you know, who are deadly enemies to each other, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Now it's really this world of OPEC plus, which came out of the 2014-2015 price collapse, uh, which involves a Saudi-Russian oil entente. 
And in particular, I think what happened in April was really significant. You've alluded to it, but it demonstrates that actually the world oil market today is dominated by the big three, the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Russia, rather than kind of OPEC as a cohesive organization. I think it's more reactive, and I think OPEC is also looking at how its members address the energy transition as well. And what about China? How do you see the way that it crafts energy alliances shifting? I think China has, ever since the Korean War, has seen dependence on imported oil as a strategic threat. And so I think there's a lot of attention given to diversification uh, in terms of where they get their supplies from. And one of the themes of the new map is around this Russian-Chinese entente that has gotten tighter and tighter, a relationship that was once based on Marx and Lenin that to considerable degree today based on oil and gas, and at the same time diversifying in terms of they're pushing harder on electric vehicles than anybody else because their automobile fleets are growing fast. They worry that means just more dependence on imported oil and what they see as the vulnerabilities that go with it. And so if there were to be a U.S.-China decoupling, what would that mean for energy markets and for some of those alliances, specifically the China-Russia alliance that you highlighted? Charlotte, I think you're going to what is the most important geopolitical question in this century, which is where does the relationship between China and the United States go? Energy is part of that, and as part of the trade deal uh, that was made last year, China said it would import a lot of U.S. energy, and in fact, China has become a major export market for U.S. oil and gas. I think as long as they want to try and keep the trade deal going, they'll continue to do that, but this decoupling that changes the whole way the world economy has operated since uh, the beginning of this century, if that does happen. Charlotte, I was struck by Daniel Jürgen's point that there's so much uncertainty here, uncertainty around what happens to the world economy, uncertainty about how quickly oil demand falls. What do you make of it all? There's huge amounts of debate on how quickly demand will shift. What's really interesting, though, is that Capital markets have already started to change. So investment is really drying up. It's going to become really hard for countries that have expensive, dirty oil and gas to find investors. You know, Venezuela, whenever its government stabilizes, will ha- I think will have a-, a hard time attracting capital, even countries such as Nigeria as well. Even Russia, which is, of course, a huge oil and gas producer, you see Russia pivoting away from Europe because of faltering demand in Europe and pivoting towards China. And, and and in particular, I argue in the briefing in this week's issue that China best exemplifies some of these shifts, both because it's a huge buyer of oil and gas, and it already has used its clout as a buyer in the past to prop up some ven- vulnerable petrostates, including Venezuela and Iran. And also because more than any other country, it has really invested a lot and thought strategically in thinking about the clean energy supply chain all the way from the mine, wherever it may be, in the DRC or in Chile or Australia, to the meter. So for China, a big priority is ensuring its long-term energy security, because in the past it has been dependent on imports. And part of ensuring that security is becoming a very big electricity power, which is what I call an electrostate. If the 20th century had petrostates, I'd argue that China best shows what it means to be an electrostate in the 21st century. A bias market is a very good place to be the world's biggest buyer. 
Kevin Tu is based in Beijing, where he teaches at the Environment School of Beijing Normal University. He's also a fellow of Columbia University's Energy Policy Center. So China has agenda-setting power in not only the global oil market, but also the car manufacturing industry. But it also brings tremendous energy security risk. Xi Jinping has repeatedly asked national oil companies double down efforts on domestic oil and gas production. China has already invested heavily on energy projects under the Belt and Road Initiatives. That's also why Russia has recently started to propose the second power of Siberia pipeline to China for shipping around 50 billion cubic meters of natural gas to China annually. Let's talk a bit more about China's domestic energy industry. How did China become the world leader in renewable energy? In early 2000, when European countries started to invest in renewables, Chinese government was willing to provide subsidies to encourage domestic producers to meet rising European demand. That's why, in 2019, China alone has installed more than one third of global solar and wind power capacities. Second, Chinese manufacturing industry excels in achieving economy of scale, so it has made a significant contribution to the drastic cost reduction of clean energy technologies. For instance, wind turbines prices have fallen by about 60% during the last decades. How should the rest of the world think about the strengths and weaknesses of China's energy economy? So, as the world's largest producer of electricity, renewable power, battery storage, and electrical vehicles, China is keen to set technical standards across a range of industry. So, yes, China possesses great potential. However, I think that when we talk about Chinese energy power, it's also Uh, important to point out、uh, the fact that the Chinese energy economy is full of contradiction. On the one hand, China is the largest coal consumer, accounting for around 29 percent of global carbon emissions. On the other hand, since 2008, the Chinese energy economy had already started a journey of redemption. Within one decade, China has already become the world's largest clean energy market. Only if we can examine the system as a whole, we can have a better understanding of the Chinese energy economy. Kevin Chu, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Charlotte, China isn't alone in pursuing the technological edge in renewables. So, just as the historic anxiety over finite fossil fuels is evaporating, should we expect a new race to secure potentially scarce key mineral resources? What's interesting here is that it's not as if the world doesn't have enough. Rare earths, despite the title, rare earths are not actually that rare. But there isn't that much investment, and you've seen China,、uh, which has a natural endowment of rare earths, but does not have a particular edge in lithium or cobalt, for instance, investing far beyond its borders strategically in mines in places such as the DRC,、um, but also in Chile, in、uh, in Australia. In nickel mines in Indonesia, I spoke with Mike Mullen, Admiral Mike Mullen, who was the former chair of the. Joint Chiefs of Staff under Obama, the single most powerful member of the military, and he now is on an advisory board of of a mining company that is trying to invest in key minerals independent of Chinese control. He told me that he 
kind of likened it to Huawei, where we wake up and all of a sudden we realize that China's in control of the world. Governments are waking up to this. A group of billionaires, including Bill Gates, they're backing a company that is going to search for cobalt in Quebec, in Canada. There are all different kinds of efforts underway as people wake up to this reality that we do need to think more strategically about access to to critical minerals going forward. But the West is about a decade behind China, at least, in thinking about this. If we take a step back from those geopolitical implications, this is really good news for the world, isn't it? Absolutely. The old system was hugely dysfunctional. I mean, it made the whole world dependent on a minority of oil producers. It increased economic volatility in the global market. In states that did have very rich resources, it helped to foster corruption and cronyism. Those economies didn't diversify. A shift away from the old oil system is hugely preferable, basically, for everybody. Most important, the energy system will become far less dirty. The single biggest risk is that it happens too slowly because the damage of of not maximizing this opportunity to move on from fossil fuels would have huge and deeply serious political and economic consequences. And then the second is that if the shift is disorderly, if governments don't think about this properly, that it could add to instability in petrostates and concentrate control of the green supply chain within one country, in particular China. So bearing in mind these risks, what needs to happen to make this vision of a new 21st century energy order a reality? There are two big things that need to happen. One is that governments really need to replace talk about climate change with serious action. And that means helping to either invest directly or catalyze investment in renewable energy. It means investing in research to uh, help decarbonize the broader economy, because that certainly will involve technologies that are not yet up to speed. And the other thing is that the petrostates and governments that depend on oil and gas need to accelerate their fiscal reforms to try to become less dependent on fossil fuels in order to weather this transition. The more aggressive they can be, the better. And then just a final note on China. It's really important to think about China's role, both its geopolitical role and its role as a real powerhouse of electricity going forward. It is a dominant position in the manufacturing of solar panels and batteries. It is absolutely dominant in the refining of key minerals, such as cobalt and lithium, that are needed for the energy transition. Uh, But it also is the world's biggest polluter because of its continued investments in coal. And in order to achieve the goal of limiting climate change, there needs to be some form of cooperation with this huge entity that is at once the world's biggest polluter and its biggest clean energy superpower. And a deterioration in the relationship with China would be seismic for many reasons. But in the long term, I'd argue perhaps the most important would be the effect on the fight against climate change. Charlotte Howard, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. And our thanks too to Spencer Dale, Daniel Jurgen, and Kevin too. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. We've only scraped the surface of how clean energy could reshape the global economy. For more, I really recommend the full cover package in this week's Economist. As well as Charlotte's briefing on China's rise as an electrostate, there's a brilliant special report on how climate change and efforts to curb it are turning the business world upside down. 
For full access, subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer. That's economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the show notes. While you're with us, please give us a rating or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps us immensely. Thank you for listening to Money Talks. I'm Rachna Shanbog, and in London, this is The Economist. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.